Welcome to Warrington Bible Fellowship. I'm Associate Pastor Scott Farrell, and today we're going to be in Esther chapter 8, a sermon entitled Salvation, where we're going to learn that in saving us, God is giving us eternal joy and gladness. Isn't that good news? Well, be sure to like and subscribe to our channel uh, so you can keep up to date uh, on all of our latest videos. God bless you. Speaking of rescue, that's what we're going to be talking about today. Well, good morning, everybody. Good, everybody's awake. Good morning online. We're glad you're here. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Esther chapter 8. We're continuing our story of Esther. Last week, we were in chapter 7, and we watched as Haman got busted for his crime, and he was summarily executed, of course, by uh, King Ahasuerus. And Esther, of course, played the key role uh, in revealing Haman and his plot to the king. You see, Haman had not uh, realized that everything is revealed. That was the truth last week that we learned. Everything is revealed under the watchful eye of God who fiercely protects His people, doesn't He? And so likewise, likewise, we've been busted for our sin too, haven't we? And that revealed our desperate need for a Savior. We cannot understand grace without understanding the gravity of our sins. Only in understanding how terrible our sins are, in God's view, do we begin to comprehend how magnificent His grace is and how magnificent that promise of of eternal life is. And that is when we rejoice, just like Jimmy was just talking about, when the Lord comes back, when the Lord comes back. Well, we needed a mediator between us and God to reconcile us to Him, and Christ is our mediator. In the story of Esther, Esther is the mediator. And with Mordecai's help, she comes up with a plan to save the Jews. The first step uh, was, of course, to reveal Haman for who he was. And that job is now finished. That was in chapter 7, and so we continue today in chapter 8 as we see that plan move right along. And I think this chapter uh, really can speak to us in our day and time, in, in, our, in our current situation. We, these last couple of years, uh, these days have been pretty, pretty rough. Uh, there's not much to make us happy in a worldly sense. Our country's fragmented. We're under a ton of stress as a, as a nation. The economy is, is a little bit rough right now, a little bit uneasy. Our, our commute might be getting worse and worse as each day passes. Our relationships might be stressed for various reasons. And, and you know, the Nats are mediocre this year, too. So, you know, but seriously, there is. There's a, there's a lot to stress us out these days. There's a lot to stress us out. And so today's message is for every single one of us. It's a reminder of the joy that we have because we follow Christ, not only as individuals, but as His church, the bride of Christ, because of what our Lord has done for us. That's where our joy comes from. And so today we get to watch as God saves the Jews in Esther's day. And this teaches teaches us a powerful lesson as we see the direct result of being saved, and that is the joy that Jimmy was just talking about. That is the celebration and the gladness that we experienced when we've been saved. 
And so even though there are grave problems today, even in uh, the church universal, and with all of the bad headlines floating around in the news, I mean, I read through my, my news feed sometimes, and it's hard, I'm hard-pressed to find any, any good news. So even with, with all of that and our stressed relationships and all of those sorts of things, there's a wonderful and glorious truth for today. And that is, in saving us, God is giving us everlasting joy and gladness. In saving us, God is giving us everlasting joy and gladness. And that is good news for today, isn't it? It's the kind of joy and gladness that rises above all of this stuff. Everything else in our world. This joy is, is way better than the Nats winning it all. It's way better than our, our commute getting shorter. And it's even way better than being healthy. It's the joy of knowing Christ forever and ever and ever and ever. Now, as we, as we approach Esther chapter 8, we, we've talked a couple of times during our series on Esther about how this story is written as what's called a chiasm. This is a literary term, meaning that the story is written in a way that builds up to a high point right in the middle of the story, and then the events reverse themselves, but in a new way uh, that sheds light on some great truths, and that's especially true with chapter 8 today. Now, a copy of this chiasm is in your pew. Uh, you can look for it. There's, there's some scattered around. If you haven't got one right where you are, you can, you can snatch one. Uh, if you're watching from home, by the way, I emailed it to you this morning. I forgot to send it out yesterday, so you can print that out. But in this chiasm, you can see that the high point of the story is in, in Esther chapter 6. When the king, by divine plan, by the way, uh, when the king could not sleep, what a coincidence, and he had the record book read to him, and he realized, well, lo and behold, I haven't honored Mordecai for saving my life, for revealing an assassination plot against me. And so everything hinges on that point of the story, and everything begins to reverse. And so you can see where chapter 8 is in our chiasm on that, on that chart showing the chiasm. This is where King Ahasuerus makes his second decree. That's where we are today in chapter 8. And so as you're looking at that, I want you to grab another sheet. That's the one with the green stripe across it. It's uh, the one I titled very cleverly, Parallels Between Esther 3 and 8 and the Gospel. And so I want you to grab that sheet too. And if you're watching at home, uh, you'll find that in the email that I sent yesterday. And by the way, if you are watching from home and you're wondering what in the world I'm talking about with all these emails, uh, well, uh, we send out each week uh, before the service a few materials that help you to understand uh, the sermon a little bit better and, and also to engage uh, some in our, in our worship. And so if you'd like to get those emails, uh, just... Email me at the address on the screen. Uh, we'll be happy uh, to get you on the list to send out those materials every single week. It doesn't matter if you're not a member of WBF. We, we'd love to hear from you, and we'd love to get that out to you. Now, what this chart shows with the green stripe across is a piece of the chiasm that we're talking about. That is, this is where we are uh, in the story uh, in chapter 3 and also in chapter 8. 
Chapter 8 is the parallel chapter to chapter 3. And chapter 8, of course, is on the other side of the high point. Things are, are going in reverse now in a whole new and wonderful way. And so chapters 3 and 8 are almost mirrors to each other, except that there is this complete reversal in chapter 8. Of every single thing that happens in chapter 3, it just gets turned on its head. And it's, it's wonderful to watch because we see God at work in it. And so seeing chapters 3 and 8 side by side like this is important for us as we consider what God is saying to us in chapter 8 today. God wants us to see the contrast between Haman and his plan and Esther's plan, which of course is orchestrated by God himself. God wants us to see how Haman was, was uh, creating evil at every step of the way in his life because he was an evil man. That's just like the devil and his minions. The devil and his minions create uh, evil. They uh, create hardship and, and terrible things in our life because they want to destroy us. But by faith in Christ, we're protected from that. Because you see, God also wants us to see God's goodness. He, God wants us to see that whatever He touches, in essence, turns to gold, right? Right? He wants us to see that everything that He touches is for good and it's all for His glory. Now you'll notice on that chart with the green stripe, you'll notice the third column over on the right. And that's titled the Gospel. Now this is, is uh, something that I noticed as I was studying chapter 8. This is how the story of Esther uh, relates to the Gospel in chapters 3 and 8. And the gospel, of course, is God, God's ultimate plan to save us and the results of that salvation, that joy that we're going to talk about. Isn't that beautiful? Not only was Esther written in such an artful and clever way, but woven into the events of the story are a lot of the hallmarks of the good news of Jesus Christ. It's absolutely incredible, this story from long ago. So all to say, this is going to be our outline today, this chart with the green stripe across. We're going to consider a very hopeful and I pray very refreshing truth for today in saving us. God is giving us everlasting joy and gladness. And so allow me to read for us a portion of chapter 8. And so prepare your hearts to receive the word of God. Beginning in Esther chapter 8, verse 15. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province, in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. The word of the Lord. And so let's begin. Let's begin with chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, and chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. 
In chapter 3, we see Haman reach the peak of his meteoric rise to power as King Ahasuerus' right-hand man. In essence, he's the equivalent of the prime minister of the Persian Empire, this vast empire that stretches from India all the way to the Mediterranean Sea. And everybody in Susa is bowing down to Haman. He's, they're just bowing before him because he's the, the second uh, the right-hand man of King Ahasuerus, except for one guy. And we've talked about him before, the Jew Mordecai. The reason, of course, for this, uh, just to remind you, is that there was bad blood between the Jews and Haman's ancestors from all the way back in King Saul's day uh, because King Saul did not do as God had commanded him to do, and that is to kill all of the Amalekites of which Haman is a descendant. And so Mordecai won't bow to him, and Haman hates Mordecai's guts. (laughs) And, And all of this really peeves Haman. Mordecai's refusal to bow to Haman fuels his hatred of the Jews in general. It just stokes the fire of his hatred. And now that he's, in essence, sitting in the corner office of the State Department, He realizes that he's now got the power to take revenge if he can do a little conniving and manipulation of the king. And that's, of course, what he does. But fast forward to chapter 8, and we see the very man, Mordecai, whom Haman had sentenced to die on the gallows, we see that man, Mordecai, replacing Haman. Because Haman is now hanging in shame from the very gallows that he had built for Mordecai. And King Ahasuerus, that very same day, that is the day that Haman is hung up on the gallows, his body isn't even cold. King Ahasuerus gives the estate of Haman to Queen Esther. You talk about a fall, but also talk about a rise from nothing. You see, Mordecai and Esther began this story as regular people like you and me. Mordecai worked around the palace, but so did a whole lot of other people in the capital city of Susa. I mean, you know, we can almost picture, picture Mordecai and, and, and Esther as, as middle-class folks like us. You know, maybe there's a lot of other people on your street who have nebulous jobs with the government. <laughs> this is who Mordecai is. But Esther had already become queen for such a time as this. God had already placed her exactly where she needed to be. And now Mordecai, who days before had been mourning for his people in sackcloth and ashes, is now being fitted for a royal robe. Isn't that something? Isn't that so much like God? In fact, fact, this idea is at the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I love the way Mary, in in her prayer called the Magnificat, Mary is the mother of our Lord, and and she prays it this way in Luke 1, 51 and 52. She prays, God has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Isn't that beautiful? That's what God has done with us. This is exactly what had happened uh, to Haman and Esther, how he had been brought down by God. But God also exalted Esther and Mordecai to accomplish his will. Likewise, Christ humbled himself 
to become one of us. Don't miss that. Christ humbled himself so that we might be exalted to everlasting life. That resurrection that Jimmy was talking about a few minutes ago. In other words, Christ exalted a bunch of sinners like you and me to become his bride, his spotless, unblemished bride. And that will bring him glory forever and ever. Brothers and sisters, doesn't that give you joy and gladness? Doesn't that put a smile on your face? We should remember that this week when we hear the next bit of bad news. Because we know the good news. We know that because of Christ, we rejoice starting right now and forevermore. And forevermore is a very, very long time. That's how long we get to rejoice. Well, next we're in verses 3 through 6 in chapter 3 and 3 through 4 in chapter 8. So in chapter 3, verse 5, we see Haman express his anger toward Mordecai. He's filled with fury at Mordecai for not bowing down to him. And the Hebrew word here is about hot anger. This is wrath, and there's even a sense of poison and venom uh, involved in some cases. But this Hebrew word is often used for God's wrath toward our sin. That's appropriate, isn't it? God is wrathful toward our sin. That's why we need a Savior. But what we're witnessing here in Haman's wrath is a man who is trying to shove God out of the way and step in for God to pour out his wrath on Mordecai and his people for their supposed sins simply because he hates their guts. And isn't that what we do when we hang on to anger toward another person? Jesus likens that to murder. And that's because we're holding another image bearer of God in contempt. But Haman isn't just satisfied to pour out his wrath on poor old Mordecai by himself. He's got plans to to destroy all the Jews in verse 6. But moving on to chapter 8, in verses 3 and 4, we see an entirely different tone, don't we? We see Esther expressing her love for God's people. She again takes the grave risk to approach the king without his permission. And you know, by now, with all this stuff that's happened with Haman, the, the, the king might have had enough of her shenanigans. But of course, we read that, that he finds favor with her. He holds out his golden scepter to show favor to Esther. And that's because she's weeping and begging the king to avert Haman's evil plan, which still stands, by the way. Those edicts that he had written under the authority of the king still stand because they cannot be uh, literally revoked in the sense nullified. They have to be dealt with another way. And what we're about to see is that another edict can be written to uh, counteract Uh, the first edict. But you see, Esther loves her people, and this even spills over into verse 6. We hear her say, For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Do you see the incredible contrast between her and Haman? Haman's like a psychopath. In fact, maybe he could be a certified psychopath. I don't know. 
But he has no remorse. He has no compassion. He has no feeling except rage toward the Jews. But Esther's compassion and her love for her people is so great that she's willing to die for them. And isn't that exactly what our God did for us? Isn't that exactly what He did? John 3.16 For God so loved the world that what? He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. There it is again, the resurrection. God didn't love us because He thought we were worthy of love. That would be closer to what Esther was motivated by because she was a Jew herself. But God loved us while we were yet His enemies, as Paul declares. God loves us even though we're totally unworthy of His love. Romans 5.8, But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ did what? He died for us. God loves us and He's proven it with the life of His Son by crushing His own Son. Isn't that the best news you've heard all day? Doesn't that give you joy and gladness? We should remember that this week as we hear the next bit of bad news because we know the good news. Because of Christ, we rejoice beginning right now and forevermore and forevermore is a very, very long time. And next we see King Ahasuerus give Haman the authority to carry out evil in chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. And then the king in chapter 8, verses 5 through 8, gives Esther and Mordecai the very same authority to carry out good. You see how things reverse. Haman has worked out uh, the date uh, by casting lots to kill all of the Jews in verse 7 of chapter 3. Then he approaches the king, well, to manipulate him, to tell half-truths and to basically bribe him to agree with his plan by giving his little details about the plan to the king, basically saying to the king, you know, there's this little problem over here. I won't bother you with the details, but I'll take care of it. You Don't worry. Just give me, give me the, the word and, and I'll do it. And so that's exactly what King Ahasuerus does. In verse 10, he foolishly gives Haman his signet ring, which represents his full authority, as King Ahasuerus says it, to do with the people as seems good to you. What seems good to an evil man is pretty obvious. And so, manipulating the king requires tomfoolery and manipulation and all of those things, but there's none of that in how Esther approaches the king in chapter 8, verses 5 through 8. In verse 5, she doesn't even try uh, to do anything of the sort to manipulate or trick the king into doing something about Haman's plot. As dire as the situation is, she simply asks him directly, doesn't she? Look at verse 5 of chapter 8. And she said, uh, you know, if I have found favor with you, if I'm pleasing in your eyes, let 
an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. You can't get much more open and plain about your intentions than that. And so in verse 8, the king gives Esther and Mordecai the same authority that he had given to Haman, and so they write a new edict to save the Jews. But here's some more good news for us. God has had a plan for salvation since before the foundations of the earth. His plan can not be revoked or even revised as Haman's plan is about to be. And God has given His authority to Christ to carry out His plan. This is what Jesus was praying about in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night that He was betrayed in verses 1 1 and 2 of, of John 17. He lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. The hour has come for our plan to come to fruition. It's time for it to happen. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given Him authority over all flesh. Did you catch that? Authority to do what? Authority to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. Resurrection. Eternal life. We know for sure that we're saved because Christ has the authority of heaven to do it. Nobody else can say to you that they have saved you. Only Christ can do that. God has not given us or anybody else the authority to save ourselves. But Christ has that authority and He has the right to do it because He lived a sinful life here on earth and no one can take away His authority to save us. All we have to do is to agree with Him. To agree that He is the only one who saves because He's the Son of God. And then we receive His grace. We receive His grace as it comes to us through the blood of the cross. That's been God's plan all along. Isn't that incredible news? That God's plan truly saves us through Jesus Christ. Doesn't that give you joy and gladness? Come on, somebody smile. Somebody laugh. Somebody say amen. Doesn't that give you joy and gladness? We should remember that this week as we hear the next bit of bad news because we know the good news. We know that because of Christ, we rejoice even right now and forevermore and forevermore is a very, very long time. Well, next we see that new edicts are written and distributed in chapter 3, 12 through 15, and chapter 8, 9 through 14. These two passages are virtually identical, uh, certainly in their structure and in the kinds of things that happen. The next step after any plan is conceived, of course, is that Well, you have to figure out how to implement it, and usually that requires communication, doesn't it? 
And so in both chapters, the same things happen, of course, with very different plans. One is for the annihilation of the Jews. That's complete destruction. Not a man, woman, or child left standing. In chapter 8, it's a plan for salvation of every Jew by giving the Jews permission to annihilate anyone who would destroy them. And so this plan has to be distributed throughout the empire, and that's exactly what happens. But isn't Esther's plan a picture of God's holy justice? Those who love the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. The work of salvation is finished, but it hasn't yet been fully consummated. Those who love the Lord Jesus will be saved, but in the end, when Christ again, he's going to lead us into battle, isn't he? A battle to defeat everybody who rejects him. Those orders come later. That's what we're waiting for, is when Christ returns. But in the meantime, we have other marching orders, don't we? We have an edict from God, a decree. Now that that work is finished, the work of salvation, uh, when Jesus received the sour wine in John 19.30, he said, it is finished, and bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The work of salvation is finished. But now... Since that work is done, it's time for us to go and communicate to the world what God's plan is so that they can hear it and so that they can receive Christ. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, And Jesus came and said to the disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You know, that's, that's good news not only for the lost, Many of us can remember that day when we received that good news. But it's also good news for us as believers because we have holy work to do. We've, God has told us what to do. And it's a wonderful thing. Our job as Christians isn't to achieve world domination or, or national domination. Our job is to teach people the good news of Jesus Christ. We don't... We don't have to have the weight of the world on our shoulders because He does. He does. All He wants us to do is, is what He's sending us forth to do. And that is to share His gospel. To make new followers of Christ wherever they are and to bring them into His church. And to celebrate their salvation with them by the sacrament of baptism. They're entering in an immersion into Jesus Christ. And to teach them to obey Christ just as Christ has taught us to do. And just as those who witness to us and who have discipled us have taught us to do. And so we have God's work to do. Isn't that wonderful? And it's not a work that, that tears us apart. It's a, word, it's a, it's a work that, that because of the life that's in us, we get to do joyfully doesn't doesn't that give you joy and gladness <laughs> to be able to do his work we should remember that this week the next time we hear the next bit of bad news because we know the good news we know that because of christ we rejoice beginning right now and forevermore and forever 
is a very, very long time to get to rejoice. And finally, we see Susa thrown into confusion by Haman's plan in chapter 3, 15 through 17. But we see not only Susa, but the entire empire turned into joy and gladness for the Jews in chapter 8, 15 through 17. The king and Haman sit down at the end of chapter 3 to, to have some martinis and to think about what a good thing that they've accomplished in ordering the annihilation of all of these people. But the confusion and fear among the Jews that reigns outside the palace testifies to a different reality. And that's a fear and confusion that we can easily have in this day and time, isn't it? But we have a great God, a God who has promised to save us, who has already done the work of salvation, and He will come back, as Jimmy taught us earlier. The reality is absolutely reversed in chapter 8, isn't it? When there's a holiday spirit among the Jews in Susa, they're, they're running around celebrating. There's joy across the empire as the good news spreads about their salvation. And as this great deed of God, whether those who didn't know God understood it to be a great deed of God or not, well, as this good news reaches the ears of those who wanted to destroy the Jews, it turns out not to be such good news, does it? And so to protect themselves, they try to protect themselves by lying and by claiming to be Jews. And that's the truth, isn't it? The good news of Christ isn't such good news to those who reject Him. Psalm 1 is right. The way of the wicked will perish. But salvation is fantastic news to everybody who is on a sinking ship, who is saved by the rescuers. God, being rich in mercy, has saved us. But just imagine somebody, somebody who was rescued from the Titanic getting back to dry land and putting their head on the pillow in their own bedroom that night and saying, eh, so what? I'm saved. No, we know that even in their sorrow for those who were lost, they celebrated, they rejoiced, didn't they? How much more ought we to celebrate, brothers and sisters, because our salvation isn't just until we die. It is forever. <laughs> it's forever. And that should change the way we approach every single day, shouldn't it? That should certainly put a smile on our face. And it should, certainly should cause us to exude a joy that other people notice. Because you see, in, in saving us, God is giving us everlasting joy and gladness. A joy and a gladness that, yes, we can experience right now. And this is what, what the passage that that Wayne read for us a few minutes ago is about. 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 9. God is, is blessed because according to His great mercy, He's caused us to be born again to a living hope. And what is that living hope? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There it is again. 
And we've been born into this inheritance that is imperishable. It's undefiled and unfading. And it is kept in heaven for you. It is a guarantee. And so in verse 6, in this you rejoice. Though now for a little while you're grieved by various trials. Notice what Peter is saying. You rejoice even in the midst of those trials. Not rejoicing because of the trials, but rejoicing over what Christ has done for you. And this is the hope that we have to share with the world. And so though you have not seen him, you love him. Is that true for you? Though, though you do not now see him, in other words, he hasn't yet returned, you believe in him and what? Rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. How come y'all aren't smiling right now? I mean, doesn't that give you joy and gladness? Doesn't it? We should remember that this week, shouldn't we? When we hear the next bit of bad news. Because we know the good news. We know that because of Christ, we rejoice right now and forevermore. And forevermore is a very, very, very long time. And that is the hope that we want to share with the world. Amen? Amen. Let's rise and pray. Holy and gracious God, we praise you and exalt your name because you are the God of salvation. You are the one who loved us when we were yet sinners, when we were your enemies. You, you sent your son to live and to die and to rise again for us so that we might live and so that we might live in eternity with you. Hallelujah and amen. All glory and honor to you. Let's go in joy and gladness because we're saved. And let's let everybody we can know about it. Amen? Amen. Go in peace.